Welcome back to an episode of the Unison Church Podcast. Uh, I'm super excited for today because I get to um, have a conversation with uh, one of my best friends, Heidi Ellis. Heidi, I, you know, I last time I saw you, I just changed your name in my phone, which I feel <laughs> bad about, which I feel bad about. For context, um, Heidi and Christian were, I knew them, for most of our relationship, I knew them as dating and they got married after college. And when I came down and visited you guys, like on your couch, as I was talking to you, I was like, I really need to change Heidi's last name in my phone. So anyway. It, it may feel better. I don't think my dad has changed it yet. <laughs> well, there could be some like dad stuff going on there, though. Yes, I have, very true. I have no excuse. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm really excited about this conversation for a lot of reasons. So last time I was uh, in Texas with you guys, I uh, we talked a little bit about your doctoral uh, dissertation. So, but before we get to that that stuff, I just want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. Let us know what your experience has been like in the church, your experience with Jesus, and then we'll go from there. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so like you said, my name is Heidi Ellis. I am currently in my last year of my PhD program for counseling psychology at UNT. Um, so it has been a long journey. I'm in year six and I'm currently working as a psychology doctoral intern at a hospital in Fort Worth. So I do a lot of assessment, a lot of therapy, work with inpatient and outpatient populations. Um, so that's kind of like the school side of things of, you know, I've been really engrossed in psychology for a good chunk of my life now. Um, and as far as my religious experiences too, that's kind of like paralleled this journey a bit. I grew up in a very religious family, um, very independent, fundamental, um, pretty, pretty, you know, strict a little bit on the legalistic side. So Jesus and God was always something that was really important to me, but it was also something where I never felt like I was measuring up or really able to make God happy, right? Like it was kind of always on the verge of, if I'm not good enough, I'll end up in hell. Or if I didn't say the prayer right, you know, he, he won't accept it. So it was something that's been a little bit of a difficult journey for me, but through college, you know, we, like you said, we met in college. That was like a really transformative time for me where I started kind of like experiencing more of the relationship mm -hmm. with Jesus and with God. And, um, you know, you, we met at, at that small church, right up in Ohio. And like, I think that was really one of the first times I was like, Oh, like this can look a little bit different than what I've experienced. Yeah. And so I kind of started to experience a shift there and it's, you know, continued as I've, you know, continued my growth as an adult and, you know, navigating these things. My relationship with God is still extremely important to me, but I've started to kind of lean more into that relational side of it yeah. and um, kind of experiencing that, like being with God part of the relationship rather than always trying to please him or kind of work for him. Now, it's not to say I don't still struggle with that, um, sure, sure. but that's kind of where I've ended up of kind of recognizing like, oh, no, there's something more here. And this can kind of be more of a relationship than I thought. Um, and maybe some of those boxes that I thought I had to check, like maybe 
he doesn't actually care about those things quite as much and just kind of wants wants me um yeah so i'll leave it there for now but yeah that's kind of where i'm at with with him that's awesome that's really cool yeah i always say like following jesus is only ever about following jesus um and that you know a lot of times we want to make it like performative or like behavioral like only behavioral right and it's like no it's supposed to be about jesus like this guy who we're supposed to be in a relationship with and so yeah yeah i'm a i grew up in a very like productivity focused family which you know isn't always a bad thing right but it's kind of like we need to be productive with our time and like wise with our money and with our resources and I think that kind of spilled into um how I thought about my relationship with God too like in addition to the things I was learning at church I was like I gotta be productive for him like he wants to check on me at the end of the day and be like what have you done for me um and so yeah it really was a lot more about me than him in that setting and um it it wasn't even benefiting me right like it was about me i was stressed yeah yeah i this is one of the reasons why we're such good friends because i i feel like we have a similar background because i would say the same thing like even to this day i'm such like a productivity whore like that's like i'm just obsessed (laughs) with it you know like and well said sean thank you thank you and uh yeah so it's that's such a hard thing to get past um, is just being able to like rest in Jesus. And like, I mean, the whole point is that we can't do it ourselves. And so this guy, Jesus has to step in and bridge the gap between us and God. Cause there's nothing that we can do that gets us there. Right. That's literally the message, but somehow it gets turned into this like productivity house of, you know, building the spiritual gifts or like, um, uh, you know, working out the fruit of the spirit or like, um, you know, even, even good things like take care of the poor and like doing good things in your community, like all that stuff. And those are all good and byproducts of, of what a relationship with Jesus looks like, but it's not about the productivity. It's about the relationship and and resting in who Jesus says you are. Yeah. Like sitting at his feet and, um, I'm definitely the person who's like, no, I got to run, clean the house for him and make the big meal and like do all the things. So he's really impressed and like, likes me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this is a question I didn't think about before, but your your church background, when you said it was independent fundamental, it was non-charismatic, right? Yeah, it was non-charismatic. Um, we, it was Baptist and very, um, very traditional. Yeah. Very traditional. Was it Southern Baptist or was it in, just independent fundamental? Independent fundamental. Okay, us, us too. We were independent fundamental and then we eventually dropped the fundamental part of that. <laughs> <laughs> over time <laughs> and now now yeah. i don't know I don't, I don't know what now i always say we only have baptists in our name we're not actually baptists because i think any baptist church would excommunicate us pretty quickly but um <laughs> <laughs> so what what was it like for you that little church that we met in um what was it like being in a charismatic church i think like at first it almost felt like I was being like a little rebellious. Like I was like, ooh, like a woman is preaching. Like yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, like that's right, charismatic and egalitarian. Yeah, that's true. That's I know, true. I know. But it honestly was just like it was one of the few places where I really felt like they were trying to get to know me as a person. Yeah. They weren't just trying to get me to do things for the church or, you know, um, pushing me to fit 
a certain box. Like when they would check in on me, it wasn't like a, have you been doing your devotions every day? It was like, a, how are you doing, Heidi? Like, you know, yeah. what's God doing in your life? Or even just hearing a woman speak, it was, it was one of those things where I realized like she was able to really speak to some of my spiritual needs and experiences and yeah. in the roles that I was in that I hadn't really heard attended to in the past. So I think even that it kind of invited God into like some different areas in my life and was so much more relationally focused with the church body and like the way they talked about Jesus, like they talked about him, like he was their friend, like not their taskmaster, yeah. not yeah. the person. Um, that they had to please so that they had enough money for bills. Um, and just also just like the amount of faith and, and hope and trust in him to like meet everyday needs. It was like, you know, it, it wasn't reserved for the big grand miraculous things. It was like, no, like he can be a part of your day to day. Um, mm-hmm. which are all things that I think even really fundamental, you know, um, traditional churches would maybe say, yeah, but it was like, I got to see it kind of play out differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just felt very real. Like it didn't feel image focused. You could just show up however you were. You didn't have to dress a certain way. You didn't have to worry about pretending to look happy or like you had it all together. Like you mm-hmm. could genuinely just show up and struggle with other people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I never realized how like grief and lament were like a pretty big part of new songs. We had a lot of services that it was like, you know, this is not going to be like a super happy service. Like we're just going to kind of be, yeah, be broken together, which I think is, uh, yeah, that's a rare experience. We, we really had, we found a gem (laughs) in Ohio. That was on paper. Yeah. It should be a terrible experience. (laughs) Everything that went through and the people in it, like it should have been really bad like it's like why would you stay when there's so much pain and so much you know yeah. difficulty but it was also just so real and like yeah. the comfort that came in inviting God into those spaces you know everyone always says church is like supposed to be like a hospital right but like sure. very few churches actually feel like that yeah. and I think that was one of the fewer it's like yeah like pain and grief and difficulty are genuinely like welcomed here and God was like definitely like the most present that I've, I've felt in that, in that setting. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. Oh, so cool. So cool. So many good memories at, um, uh, back there. You know, I, I, people, people ask me about college and I always have like a mixed, it's like, it was a mixed bag for me. Um, mostly because I think at college, I, I began to unpack what would become my, you know, foundational isn't quite the right word, but it was a paradigm shifting moment for me theologically, um, Mm -hmm. in my relationship with the Lord. And, you know, as I was like kind of gearing up going into ministry afterwards, like, um, that, that became so foundational to like who I was, like the, some of the theological shifts that happened. And interestingly enough, like the theological shifts that happened were away from the theology at our college. Um, and they were like different from there. So I remember just like sitting in chapel because we had to do chapel every day, just listening to people speak and being like, I just feel so opposite of what some of the vibes were, you know? So that, that led to like some more negative experiences in college, but um, also I was like crazy busy and behind the eight ball all the time I felt like, but 
but then like looking back, you know, there were some really, really good things about my college experience, one of which is at church, but like another one was the friends that I made, like some of my friends I still keep in contact with now, which is like very rare for, uh, for adults. And, um, there's still like five or six of you guys that I keep in contact with and uniquely to you and your husband, Christian, um, you guys really, as far as like spiritual formation, you were definitely like the primary agent of spiritual formation in my life during college. Um, like just conversations that we had together, sometimes like negative conversations. So I wanted to just tell my audience a story that I, I wonder if you even remember this story. So it was, uh, it was second year and we were in, oh man, what Lawler Lounge. That's what it was at, <laughs> at Sierra University. We Lawler Lounge. Yeah. I had to think, I had to remember, like unlock that memory in my brain. Okay. So we were like sitting at like a high table or whatever. And there was like a table somewhere else and it was just you you me and christian uh so it was just the three of us and we were just like hanging out and like across the room there was somebody with a mandolin do you remember this story this is... not so far okay, all right, keep all right. going cool, cool, maybe cool. it'll come back okay there was someone with a mandolin and um you you like looked over at that person and you said like oh that's a cool ukulele i think is what you said and i was like um that's a mandolin and i like corrected you do you remember this now no, no, but I totally believe it. Cause even now I was like, what's a mandolin? Like? Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know. can't say that you're from Texas. You're not supposed to, <laughs> but no, no. Yeah. So yeah. So I, so that happened. And then Christian looked over me and he was like, dude, this is why people hate music majors. <laughs> That's what he said to me. <laughs> and I remember like just that night, like I could not stop thinking about that because it's so true. Like music majors are such like D bags. Like they're just, I just, just tell them this to somebody else too. Like, we're just so like music school just like teaches you to be like pretentious by nature. Right. Cause you're just sitting there picking apart like all this different music and stuff. And, and I remember saying that, and that was like that. I still think about that today. Like that was a huge thing that like having that, that confrontation bit with you guys and like people that I really, really loved at the time and like just you know be kind of being a jerk in that moment and then being like immediately corrected because you guys had that like relationship with me where you could like call me out um was huge hugely formational for me and I think maybe it's it's one of the things that made me drop my like freshman like gross freshman pompous attitude that most college freshmen have <laughs> so so yeah do you, you don't remember that story at all oh, though I genuinely don't um you know I, I could totally freshman <laughs> Christian and Heidi like doing that. Right. Um, like him kind of being like, you know, cause, right. Cause we loved you. Um, yeah. but I think there was just like that big culture shift going to Ohio. Yes. <laughs> and like we connected with you so great. But sometimes it was hard to connect with, you know, everyone's trying to figure out who they are. And so sometimes people would fall into like playing roles or whatever. And it kind of like yeah. it's hard to navigate. Right. Um, and there was a lot of pressure on music majors just in general. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I was coasting in psychology and you were <laughs> working a hundred hours a week. Jeez. Yeah, that was <laughs> writing wild. Writing songs and doing all the things. Um, but no, that's so interesting. And it's crazy how just like a memory like that could be something that stuck with you so much. And yeah. like for me, it's kind of like, oh, cool. It's it's not a ukulele. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but... Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It was just such like a shifting point for me. I think, I think I always like talk about how, with, especially with college people that come home, it's like they, you come home for the first time and you just like, you, you feel, 
you feel like you're just smarter than everybody else. You, you know what I'm saying? Like you have such this attitude, like, oh, I'm educated now. Like I, I know what I'm talking about. Like I'm an expert in my field. That was a big thing for music because music students, like legitimately when you're in college for music, especially towards the end, like you are probably one of the best musicians um, that you'll ever be like at that time because you're just spending so much time with yeah. your instrument, with your craft while you're in college. So, um, oh, so it yeah. happens for psychology too. They used to joke that the most dangerous person is a like freshman psychology major because yeah. you know just enough to be like <laughs> destructive or butted and try to fix everyone's problems. Yep, but... totally. Yep, totally. What was your um? What was what's your take? If you're like looking back to your years at Cedarville studying psychology, like what are you? Is that overall like positive for you, or like how what how do you feel about that experience? Hmm. Um. So I think it was the first time where I did like, you know, like you described feeling able to disagree with speakers and like spiritual leaders that we were being exposed to and like having that really good church experience. I think that was really good for me spiritually. And then I think it was a, a time that was really formative for mine and Christian's relationship, kind of like having a little bit more freedom to like explore those things spiritually and just in general, you know, being college students and figuring out like, how do we want to manage our lives, like independent yeah. of other people. Um, but it was also a really difficult time for my family. My parents were going through a divorce, like my freshman year and stuff. And, you know, I had siblings at home and, you know, some family relationships that were just like not good at the time. So I think like on that end, it was really, really hard and probably like a pretty negative time. Yeah. Um, but then the flip side of that is like having some space from it, like being in Ohio while like a lot of those painful things were going on in Texas. Like maybe it was a good buffer, but it's it's kind of a mixed bag for me too. Um, yeah. Like I, I'm very at peace with it, but I wouldn't say like, I don't want to go back and relive it, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I'm thankful for it. Right. Right. You guys didn't also didn't love Ohio, right? Like I, I kind of enjoyed being <laughs> in Ohio. Like I didn't mind it. But I know you guys are any of your listeners from Ohio. Yeah, Chuck is definitely listening for sure. Okay. But he deserves it. Then it's I'll okay. Be... Bash him. No, bash him. It's fine. Dude, Ohio is not for me. <laughs> so freaking cold. We were in the middle of cornfields. I'm like, oh, but it's okay. It's okay. We got through it. Yeah. Now we have our mild Texas winters and everything <laughs> shuts down. We get like half an inch of snow. Yep. Um, and the state shuts down for our, two our days. <laughs> Yeah, I will yeah. say I will say this. I did enjoy Ohio, but Ohio really needs to step up the food game overall. Yeah. But one thing they have yeah. that we don't have in Connecticut, they have steak and shake. And we don't have steak and shake in Connecticut. And that's sad. We have steak and shake in Texas. Yeah. I know you do. I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> we went to steak and shake twice when we visited when I when, when we visited <laughs> you guys. Yeah. Yep. Two times. I love steak and, and shake. Steak and shake. I'm like, steak and shake isn't even that good. Well, you guys also have Whataburger. So you have like your own. Whataburger. Yeah. 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 And Whataburger is crazy. Like the first time I had it, when we moved from Florida, I was like, this is fine. What's the hype? There's something addictive about it. If yeah. Each time you eat it, it gets better and There's better. so much MSG in that. I ha there has to be. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. That's they the sprinkle, secret. They sprinkle something in there. It's just, it gets you hooked. But Yeah. That's mm -hmm. fair. So moving forward from, you know, college aged, you've been in school since then. So tell me about that process. 
Um, yeah, so I, after completing my bachelor's degree in psychology, I went on to UNT's counseling psychology doctoral program. So I'm in my last year. Um, I'll be graduating in May with my PhD in counseling psychology. Mm-hmm. And so my focus has really been in like child and family therapy and assessment. And I've also been doing a lot of research throughout the process on um, attachment to God. So kind of like our relationship with God or a higher power. And, and in recent years, I've kind of started to focus more in on religious and spiritual abuse mm-hmm. as well. Um, and kind of looking at how, you know, religion and spirituality can be a great strength for a lot of people and a source of support and um, help them in life. But then for others, it can also be kind of a source of pain or a source of, of difficulty too. Yeah. And that's what you're doing your thesis on. My dissertation. Yeah. Um, so I, I did my dissertation on religious and spiritual abuse and attachment to God. So I was looking at, you know, a lot of different questions, but some of the ones that really stood out to me was like looking at how different identities that people hold. So whether you're white or a person of color or, um, you know, heterosexual or, you know, attracted to, um, wait, no, heterosexual or like a sexual minority or, you know, cisgender or transgender, kind of looking at how these different identities we hold interact with our religious and spiritual experiences and like potential negative experiences that we might have. And the other main question that really stood out to me was um, was looking at how our relationship with God might impact our ability to cope through those negative religious and spiritual experiences. So, like, does having a relationship with God for a longer amount of time make these negative experiences, like, less impactful? Mm-hmm. Like, could it kind of buffer it if you had been in a good relationship with with God or your higher power for a longer amount of time? So those were some of the questions that really stood out to me. Um, we we looked at other questions too. So if anyone's like really into this and nerding out, you can um, Google it <laughs> and read my whole dissertation, but it's a bit of a chunk. So I won't um, make you go through all of that today. Um, but if I can kind of share like some of the main findings of those questions, you yeah. know, the results really did show that people who... Um, were a sexual or gender minority or who had like multiple minority identities and kind of like the intersection of those identities, like it was significantly associated with more negative religious and spiritual experiences. Mm. Um, And I guess I should back up because I never really defined like how I'm defining religious and spiritual abuse. Sure. So religious and spiritual abuse is, um, you know, this, this idea of people misusing God's authority or power and kind of manipulating those around them. So in my study, after doing a literature review of, of all the available research at the time on these ideas of religious abuse or spiritual abuse, spiritual harm, um, I, I came to the conclusion that these studies all kind of we're around the idea of misusing power in a religious and spiritual setting mm-hmm. that resulted in psychological and spiritual harm. 
And a really important part of this, though, is it can occur in like a really subtle manner. So a lot of times it's overlooked. Like we know about some of the big issues that churches are facing, like, you know, sexual abuse or physical abuse happening in in religious settings. Mm -hmm. But sometimes this like misuse of power, whether it's misusing a pastor or leader's power or misusing God's power and kind of, you know, saying things in God's name that aren't actually from him to like manipulate people or kind of get people to do a certain thing, whether it's, you know, potentially like making certain decisions or certain behaviors, backing certain um, leaders or, you know, believing certain politics, like it, it can be like a very subtle thing. It can be about gender. It can be about behaviors. It can be about, um, sexual orientation and it can, you know, be really about anything, but just kind of that idea of misusing power that causes harm in, in a psychological and spiritual way. Gotcha. So if I could just maybe think of some examples, let me know if this is kind of the vein of things that you're talking about. Um, so like offline, we were talking about how, um, a lot of times, during like political seasons, um, you know, pastors might get up and they might like back a certain candidate. Um, but it might even be shaped like this, this candidate is, um, more on the side of God than another candidate, you know, even though I'm sure neither of the candidates really are trying to be on the side of God, but, um, but, but it might be something like that where you're, where you're almost like ascribing spirituality to something that, it really doesn't belong to would that be kind of in the category we're talking about if it results in causing like psychological and spiritual harm then yeah like if someone is you know planning on voting one way and the pastor's like you are going against god by doing this like you're not being a good christian like he wants you to vote this way right like that puts you in a really tough position of like i felt you know this way yeah. But now you're saying God wants me to do this thing. And like, if it results in, in that spiritual and psychological distress, then in that case, yes. Yeah. Right. If they're already like, yeah, that's who I was going to vote for. And I agree with you. Then like that wouldn't necessarily yeah. fall into that category. Now sure. I'm sure there's a ton of ethical questions around that anyways. <laughs> yeah, right. um, so I'm not just saying like, yeah, it's great. Even if it doesn't cause abuse, but um, right. Yeah, the key element there is like misusing power that results in in harm. Got it. Okay. Like one thing that I could think of that I've spent a lot of my ministry trying to undo is um, with regard to like sexual minorities. So if um, there's this message, and I don't even think it's a poor theology, although it is a poor theology, but it's usually the failure to do good theology, not this embracing of a totally like bad theology. Cause it's like not provable by scripture, but what a lot of people will do uh, when it comes to the LGBTQ plus conversation is they'll kind of like demonize that group of people. And they'll kind of talk about, they'll often talk about how, you know, um, you know, the sin of like gay sex was like more wrong than another sin maybe. And um, this happens. I've seen this all, all kinds of places from, you know, different pulpits and stuff. And one of the things that I've tried to do in my ministry is, 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 uh, you know, level the playing field a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, but I think maybe this like singling out of like a certain group of minority might also be in line with what you're talking about. 
I think it definitely could be. I mean, like if you think about maybe a kid's grown up in church and then suddenly they're like an adolescent and they're like finding themselves attracted to, you know, the whatever their same sex is, right? Mm-hmm. And if they're feeling like attacked as a person or if they try to get help and people are kind of misusing God's power in a way that's like harming them. Yeah. Um, yeah, that could be religious and spiritual abuse. Um, even just thinking about, you know, intersection of identities, right? Like um, certain, you know, races or genders, like there, there might be things that like a person of color who's a female might experience and related to beliefs about like women in the church. And, you know, um, if, if it's a predominantly white church, there might be some, you know, inherent biases and things like that, or, you know, mis misuse of, of biblical texts about, about race and things that can be really detrimental. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it just it really it really depends on on the setting and the context, but it is just that like misuse of power in a way that's harming someone psychologically and spiritually, yeah. um, in a way that makes them think that God is you know maybe against them or that they're less than others or like a bad Christian. When really, when we look at the Bible, um, you know, like you talked about sexual minorities, right? I don't think Jesus would have been demonizing um, any population. But when you look at the people that he was hanging out with, the Pharisees were the ones who were like, you know, those are the unclean people. Those are the people that we avoid because we're the good Christians, right? Like this is what God wants to do. So I kind of think of the Pharisees a lot of times when I think of religious and spiritual abuse of, you know, even those little things of like when they saw Oh gosh, I'm blanking. What was it? Was it the person who was unable to walk or something? And they were like, who sent like him or his parents? Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. He was blind. It's automatically. Yeah. Blind. Okay. Thank you. I couldn't remember like those sorts of things of like, Oh, because you're this way, like you're, you're bad. You're less than Yeah. that can cause psychological and spiritual harm. question that I did look at in my study was when we account for other experiences of trauma and abuse, so taking into account other life experiences that could negatively impact someone, and we're just looking at religious and spiritual abuse, are those experiences significantly associated with like trauma-related symptoms or mental health difficulties? And the results were significant. We're like, yes, even these like subtle little forms of psychological um, and spiritual harm, like they significantly impact people and can result in higher levels of depression, anxiety, other trauma related symptoms, and even result in like religious and spiritual struggles. Right. So like maybe they want to continue to be a religious and spiritual person, but they find themselves kind of struggling with the impacts of that past negative experience. Yeah. So um, this maybe is a bit of a backtracking question, but how are we how are we actually measuring this? Like, what process did you take to um, see this in other people? Like, are we conducting like surveys or tests, or or how's that happening? 
Yeah. So the way I conducted my study was using surveys. So I used a spiritual abuse questionnaire. Um, since my study has come out, a new survey has been released as well. I'm blanking on the name of it at this time. Mm. Um, so there are like a couple measures kind of getting at that. And here I can pull it up if you're curious to hear any of the questions on it. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool because I'm I'm interested as to whether these are questions that maybe we should be asking more regularly too, just to see where where other people are at. That's a great idea. Okay, so I use um, it's a 17 item spiritual abuse questionnaire, and I can get you the name of the author in just a moment. Um, but it it asks you to kind of rank these questions on a Likert scale from like strongly disagree disagree, agree, strongly agree, right? So kind of a one to four. Um, and some of the questions are, it was acceptable to express my true emotions in my church or group. Um, leaders in my group acknowledged when they caused harm to others. I know some religious leaders shared information about other people that should be kept private. Mm. I believe that God's love and acceptance of me was dependent upon my performance in the church or group. I currently have no trouble trusting religious leaders, churches, or groups. I no longer trust myself to find a good spiritual community. I was harshly criticized by religious leaders or church groups or members. I felt like a spiritual failure and I depended on my leader or church group to help me get it right. Mm. I believed God would punish me if I didn't do what my church or group encouraged me to do. I now feel cynical about church and religious groups. I felt freedom to ask questions or express concerns in my church or group. I felt dependent on the church or group. My religious leaders used fear to control people. I know that I or others were asked to serve as the eyes and ears for our leaders to get information about our members. Oh wow! At times I was scolded by my leader and made to feel ashamed and helpless. I believed I could be totally surrendered to God if I did everything perfectly according to the church or group's instructions. Mm. And I now feel lonely and misunderstood because of my church or group experiences. So you can kind of see like the theme of it really is like using this religious setting to kind of accomplish their own goals. Yeah. Um, and I don't necessarily think that every church or religious leader who does that is even, you know, doing it intentionally, right? Like, I think it's a subtle form of abuse sure. that's experienced. And sometimes it's hard to identify when you're experiencing it and you might kind of question yourself of, is this normal or am I just being sensitive? Maybe this shouldn't actually bother me. Maybe this is a heart issue. Yeah. When I'm bothered what my pastor says, maybe that's actually the Holy Spirit convicting me, mm. <laughs> you know? Um yeah. Yeah. But I think it's something that leaders can kind of slip into. And I think it's something that we can kind of ignore in church bodies as well. Right. Yeah. One of the things that we were talking about before as well was um, this idea that a lot of times when people have a problem spiritually, we'll put that maybe in air quotes because maybe there's also like some psychological harm being done, which is what your study kind of shows. So it's beyond spiritual as well. It's even like you might even have like some physical responses to some of this stuff. But um, but when we're talking about, you know, having a problem with the church leadership or even with God and your view of God, a lot of times I feel like the church's response to that is, well, you need to 
deepen your relationship with God and push past this stuff. Like you have some hangups that are like stopping you from experiencing the love of God. And ultimately they're because of, of your heart. I feel like that could even be a, like an extra level of like insidiousness when it comes to this like subtle abuse, because it's, it's almost like, you know, you're, you're actually the cause of what's, what's happening here. And did you experience that mm-hmm. in your, in your research as well? Like, did you find people saying that kind of stuff? So there was a finding that no matter how good your relationship with God or your higher power was to start with, right? Like, even if you had a secure relationship to God, um, these experiences of religious and spiritual abuse still really negatively impacted and either resulted in in these symptoms or like in higher levels of anxiety and leaving the church and, and things like that. Um, so it was kind of like, no matter how good the relationship was to start, this attachment injury had a significant negative impact. It wasn't like if you had a really good relationship to God and then experienced a religious or spiritual abuse or harm in that setting that like you could, it would be kind of buffered and you could just kind of like move through it because you were a good enough Christian or, you know, whatever religion it very much was like when you're in this relationship, And I know I kind of shared this analogy with you, but like, even if you're in a really good relationship or in a good marriage, right? Mm -hmm. If something really painful happens, right? Like maybe there's an affair or maybe there's some other sort of, of harm that happens that negatively impacts that relationship going forward. It doesn't matter how good the relationship was to start. Like there's going to be an injury there and there's going to be impacts, um, so it, it kind of showed that, you know, it, it, obviously we want people to have, if they do have a religious and spiritual identity, like it, it's great for them to have security in that relationship and to have that be a source of strength for them. But it doesn't negate how impactful these religious and spiritual abuses can be and how painful and disruptive that can be in that identity. Um, so a lot of people would end up de-identifying from their, you know, religion or spirituality, or they would experience a lot of attachment anxiety if they chose to stay in the relationship where they're feeling even more anxious and like, Oh, like it's so hard to please God. Like I'm never going to be good enough. Like I can't depend on him. He doesn't think I'm good enough. Um, or even avoidance where it's like kind of wanting more space in that relationship of, you know, he's not going to listen anyways. Like why bother praying? Yeah. Wow. I guess two questions from there. The first one is you mentioned an attachment injury. Um, what is that exactly? Because that's actually not a phrase that I'm super familiar with. So when we're talking about an attachment injury, what does that mean? Yeah, so that phrase, um, I'm kind of pulling from the idea of attachment theory. So if you know you or your listeners are familiar with that, it's kind of this idea that our caregivers, like those people we're exposed to as like infants, like from day one, they really shape how we view ourselves, others in the world. Right. Um, so since that theory has been formed, it's kind of expanded into different realms of life. And one of those realms is like our attachment to God or a higher power. And so, um, just however you feel in your relationship with him, right it can kind of be put into those terms. And so ideally we have a relationship with him where 
we don't have a lot of anxiety, right? Like we feel like he views us positively and we can view him positively and feel like pretty secure and stable in that. And ideally there's not a ton of avoidance where we view him negatively and like, he's not going to be there for us. I'm better off on my own, right? Like a secure relationship is I view myself positively. I view you positively. I can depend on you. You're going to be there for me. Um, And this is like a secure, solid base for me. Yeah. So an attachment injury, though, is kind of when we can have a big relational experience that can kind of shift our perception. Gotcha. Right. So whether it's, you know, trauma or abuse or, you know, what, whatever it may be, like it can impact your relationship with friends, with family members. And then thinking about our relationship with God or a higher power, like it seems like these religious and spiritual abuses can be like an attachment injury in in that space to change how you see God or how you think God views you um, and impact like your religious and spiritual path going forward. Yeah. What would you say that path is for a lot of people? Like, do do you think a lot of the people that, you know, uh, I don't know what the exact terminology is, but like rated high as far as like spiritual abuse is concerned, do a lot of them end up leaving or do the majority of them end up staying? Um, and you might, this might not be observable here, but like how many people actually deal with it too? Yeah. You know, I think that's such a great question. And I think there's starting to be a little bit more research on like religious and spiritual de-identification or like re-identification. Like when someone's like, okay, like I still want to be religious and spiritual, but I'm going to shift denominations or shift religions. Yeah. Um, some of those, you know, other categories as well. But I don't know that I can like fully speak to that, but I think it's an important question of, you know, when we experience these things, how many people are just kind of like leaving and how many people are, you know, choosing to stay or like what kind of makes a difference in those settings? Like why do people leave versus like stay or re-identify um so in in my study i like started to kind of look at does holding your religious or spiritual identity for longer keep you from from leaving or not but i didn't really look at the rates yeah um and in my study um it you know again it was just starting to touch on it so there's a whole area of research that can be done on this yeah but my findings were kind of mixed of like, if you had held the religious identity for longer, it didn't really impact the level of avoidance Got in it. your relationship with God after having a religious or spiritual abuse experience. But with anxiety, um, it, it did increase the anxiety, which could kind of make sense. Like we do have some research that avoidant coping helps in the short term. Mm-hmm. Right. So like if you're just kind of like, mm, I'm just going to avoid it, like you can kind of feel better in the moment. But long term, that's not always the most helpful. Gotcha. Catches up to you eventually. Um, so like I wonder if that might be in play here, like with anxiety, your anxiety increases no matter what, like how long you had the relationship doesn't matter. Right. But with avoidance, the longer the relationship, you're not necessarily more avoidant. Yeah. Um, but like maybe we're just also not really seeing that because maybe those people tended to cope avoidantly anyways, you know, right. It, it was a little bit 
unclear. So I think it's a really interesting area of research for people to continue to explore and to think about. And even for, you know, churches to kind of reflect on like their experiences and their members and kind of, you know, qualitatively think through like what helps people um, through these really hard times and like, how can we best support people in meeting their needs, whether that's staying in our church or like getting their spiritual needs met in another place. I think that is something that like psychology does well that maybe religion and spirituality could like consider a little bit more of, you know, if you go to a therapist and you're like, this is not working out. We are not a good fit. Yeah. Psychology, psychologists have like a responsibility to not abandon care, right? Like we have to make sure this person is connected with the resources they need to like Right. Continue to have their mental health needs met. Um, and I wonder if sometimes in religion and spirituality, if it's like, if you don't fit with us, then like you're out, you know, but it's not necessarily like there's no other options besides us is kind of the attitude that I've experienced sometimes. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I think that's a really, that's a really good insight. I think we could do a better job. Um, you know, hooking people up with other ministries because, you know, I think too, there, there are like a lot of bad ministries out there, but there is sometimes this attitude with churches where it's like, it's either us or like nothing, like we're the only good one. And that's just, I mean, we have a whole story about the prophet Isaiah or um, yeah, the prophet Isaiah doing just that. And God kind of, or I'm sorry, that was Elijah that did that, where Elijah kind of talks to God and he's like, I'm your, I'm the only one that's following you. And God's like, what are you talking about, man? There's like all these other people in Israel that, you know, they've never even thought of abandoning me. And, um, you know, that's, it's, it's a way, it's a way to encourage the prophet, but then it's also like a mode of rebuke that God gives. Like, you know, how dare you think that it's just you and that's it. And I think that churches could definitely do a better job maybe finding other good ministries to not only partner up with, but also to like send people to if they don't, uh, if, if your ministry is not their, the best fit, like where do you, where do you send them to? I remember having a phone call with, uh, with somebody who was leaving our church and, uh, it was very like, it was very painful that they were leaving cause they had been like kind of ingrained in the community mm. and specifically they had worked with me a bunch and I was like, you know, I don't know what to do. Um, I know they're leaving. They said they're leaving, but I think I want to call them one more time. And, um, so we, we had a conversation and, um, that was one of the things we talked about because I said like, okay, well, where are you, where are you going now? And they, you know, they gave some stuff and I said, well, you know, there's some churches that, um, you know, if you're looking for something that's like maybe more progressive than us, here's a couple options for you. If you're looking for something that's maybe like a little bit more conservative than us, then like, here's another um, here's another couple options that I know like these churches are like at least trying to follow Jesus, you know? Um, so, so I do think that that's something that we could do better as a church for sure. Yeah. Well, even just you reaching out, right. Like in doing the literature review, kind of going through what research has been done and what people's experiences have been. A lot of people talked about like, you have this painful religious and spiritual experience and then if they chose to leave or even if they chose to stay, sometimes they were kind of like isolated Mm -hmm. from the rest of the community members or like abandoned by them. Like if you leave, like we don't care about you anymore. Sure. And those relationships can be so important and so impactful. And like spirituality is a very intimate, very vulnerable part of people's identities oftentimes. So 
to choose to leave and for you to kind of reach out and like show support and like this relationship's not severed, you know, and I can support you and going somewhere else. Like, I think that's huge. Then if you were like, you hurt my feelings, like you, you know, me and God are mad at you and we're just never going to talk to you again. Right. Right. So I have another question for you. This is probably a good way to wrap up too. Um, but there was a, there's, there was a podcast that came out that like hit the number one charts a while ago, the, um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Did you listen to that? I didn't. Okay. I think you might find it interesting because essentially it was an interesting piece. It was, it was made by Christianity today. So they're like a journalistic organization. So they're going in and they're like talking to different people that were involved. And essentially the idea was that the leader of that church had kind of ended up being sort of a narcissist and, um, had definitely like spiritually abused some of the people in the church. But at the same time, there was a lot of good things happening at the church. And then all of a sudden, it was like one of the fastest growing churches. It was this huge church. All of a sudden, they just closed it. Um, and uh, it was just a really interesting experience for a lot of the people involved in this church. So um, anyway, I was listening to another podcast with this pastor. And he was like, they were talking, they got onto the subject of this podcast and it had kind of mixed reviews. Like, it did very well. The podcast did super well. Um, but some people were saying, oh, you know, this is, like, failure porn. Like, we're just watching, like, the failures of, like, an another pastor and, like, make, you know, just feeling better about ourselves because of it and all this stuff. But there, the the thing that he said, he was like, I, you know, I don't, I think it was handled in a really good way. And it was handled very responsibly. But he was like, the thing, the big, the big negative from this podcast is that I had people coming into my office, and he, he was a pastor. I had people from my church coming into my office, speaking to me and dealing with me in the way that they almost expected that I would have been the same kind of leader with all of this, you know, spiritual abuse and this narcissism and stuff like that. And it almost like painted him in a bad light because he was saying maybe what would happen would be that pastors would be generalized to be spiritual abusers. So do you do you feel like there's um I guess a two-part question do you feel like there's a growing like distrust of spiritual leaders because of um the research that's being done uh, on the topic and then secondly how do we like prevent ourselves in the church from becoming leaders who abuse and what are some thoughts that you might have about that Yeah I think those are great questions so let's think about people having trauma responses just in general, right? Mm -hmm. Like our minds are intelligent and we do have instincts to kind of help us yeah. navigate life. So if you, um, you know, got bit by a big mean dog in your neighborhood as a kid, you're going to have a fear response when you see, you know, dogs most likely. And you can, you sure. can overcome that or protect those biases there. And maybe you're like, okay, so it's just a little chihuahua. Like I can, I'm okay. Sure. But like we kind of get conditioned right and so I do think exposing some of these things or people having these experiences and sharing it can kind of result in people having this fear response or this drive to like kind of protect themselves like mm. you know maybe I have to be careful like maybe something can hurt me here sure but I think it's kind of up to the individual to decide if they think that that's bad or not you know mm -hmm. like it's something that needs to be worked through. Like if there's fears around this, but it's also one of those things where sometimes fear can feel like it pushes people away when really it needs to be kind of seen and heard and attended to. 
right. to overcome. And that can be a really powerful experience, right? To show that like you are coming to me with these fears about, you know, that I might hurt you or not have your best interests at heart. And you're sharing that with me. And so I'm going to show you in this moment that I can, I can meet you here differently. Like it's okay to have those fears. It's okay to maybe be angry at organized religion. Like sure. Jesus was angry. <laughs> really. <He> was. Yeah. <laughs> May we not forget the whole whip incident. Right. Yes. Um, but it, I, I think in one sense, it makes sense where like, if I were a pastor or religious leader, I, I would maybe be like, Oh man, like, this is if it if those generalizations didn't fit me, that could maybe be frustrating. But it's also an opportunity to kind of be that different leader, yeah. be that different person for people who are maybe afraid or feeling unsure of can God use this in a positive way in my life. Um, so that's kind of my take on it again, but I really think like that is such a question that's going to be so personal for each person and like their own experiences and yeah, like there is some psychology behind it, but then there's also like, yeah, my reaction as, you know, a, a church member was, is probably different than like your reaction as a church leader, you know? Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely. Okay, so yeah, one one thing that you said really made me think of this, which is just we have to be able to be like on the lookout for this kind of trauma. And sometimes when a church member is, you know, maybe they're being disruptive in some way, or maybe they're coming at you with this attitude that's like very accusatory. And like you said, it's easy to get like frustrated with that. But I think just just having in the back of your mind that this could be like a trauma response from previous spiritual abuse, whether it was from you or from someone else. Um, and just like having a lookout for that, you know, and, and I think if we, if we think of that, we could probably easier have compassion for those people. And then even like, I mean, the, the, to be a pastor in part is to help the people around you heal from stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so how are we going to like help people heal if we're not like calling out the ways that people are hurt, you know, and then yeah. looking out for those. So I, I think that's a huge it's thing. Kind too. Of like not getting caught up in whatever defenses they've built up. Right. And kind yeah. of trying to get to what is this conversation actually about? Like, what's the heart of this message right now? Um, but doing that in a way that's, you know, loving and supportive because sometimes when someone comes at that, at us with like an attitude like that we can start to get defensive too and like yeah you know you're generalizing like i'm not like that like you know i'm not like that like how sure. dare you think right that i would be that kind of person i have been nothing but great to you and your family you know sure. and it's like really that's us then being defensive so when someone comes at us with defenses raised like it's important to take a step back and kind of say like oh like this shield is a can i just walk around it like can we actually just talk about like what's behind it yeah um right yeah, for sure. I feel like the there's that question that some people will say, and usually it's used in like a funny or accusatory way, but when they're like, who hurt you? You know, like if somebody's <laughs> like coming at you and you're just like, who, like who hurt, what did somebody, somebody did something to you today? Like what, what happened to you? Um, yeah. Maybe that's not something that we vocalize because, because it's usually like accusatory or, or funny uh, in nature. Mm -hmm. But I think that is something that we should be thinking about. Like when we deal with people, it's just, you know, in what ways have you been hurt over here that's causing you to, to act in this way? And 
it's a hard I think hard. the therapist in me you know has like some phrases I've gotten comfortable with that you know I, I think a lot of pastors have their phrases too or church leaders others mm. but you know like kind of instead of like who hurt you because you're right like that that would piss me off yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. but it's like you know if it's kind of like wow like this seems really important for you like I'm glad you're sharing this with me so we can talk about it or like mm. wow like you know, you seem really angry right now. Like this is, must be really painful or really important. Like I sure. want to understand, yeah. you know, some of those things can kind of validate, like, I'm not going to run from the conversation or I'm not going to attack you back. Like let's right. kind of dive in. Yeah. I like that. Those are really good questions. Really practical. Just why, you know, this seems really painful. Tell me more about why this is so painful for you or something like that. I mean, what, what that's such a good question to ask. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for this. This has been really cool. I'm super yeah, excited. Yeah, it's been fun to reconnect with you too. Yeah, absolutely. This is great. It's always cool to hear what you know your friends are have been up to the last few few years. I mean, this has been a long, a big process for you. So thank you for sharing it. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, I hope um, you finish finish strong in this semester. Congratulations hey. in advance for uh, for thank finally you. coming to the finish and line. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. This is. Uh, a new experience for me. So it was fun to get to try that out too. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to the Unison Church podcast. If you're a Christ follower, I hope this has encouraged you to grow closer, not only to him, but also to his family. May we unite in our allegiance to him and raise our voices together to worship Yahweh. If you're not a Christ follower, I hope that this has represented Christ well to you. May this spark your curiosity towards Jesus and his people. In any case, I hope you'll connect with us again here on the podcast and share it with a friend. You can find links in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to us through other ways as well. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to being with you again soon.